This is White Collared, the podcast, Season 1, Episode 6, All In. This is White Collared, the podcast, which is a retrospective commentary on the USA Network television series, White Collar. My name is Eric Glenn Hilliard. First of all, I would like to thank you for listening to this show. Right now, as I'm recording this, we don't have a huge following, but that's okay. Now, you can help by telling a fellow White Collar fan about the show. Not everybody knows about it, obviously, and not everybody who learns about it will listen. But the more people we tell, the more people are likely to listen. So if you could do that, I would appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let's get on to this episode, All In. The episode first aired on November 27th, 2009. It was written by Jim Campolongo and Joe Henderson. Sorry, Jim, I probably butchered your last name. I apologize. And it was directed by John T. Kretschmer. An undercover FBI agent has disappeared. The prime suspect is a criminal named Lao Shen, a money launderer out of China and the target of the missing agent's investigation. Neil agrees to use his Nicholas Halden alias to try to help locate the missing agent and to capture Lau. But the case gets complicated when an Interpol agent, who is also looking to arrest Lau, promises to reveal to Neil the identity of the man who has Kate in exchange for Neil blowing the FBI's case. The episode begins with Peter and Neil walking to the office and discussing cases. When they arrive at the office, things are going a bit crazy. And Peter says, well, this can't be good. And immediately, Lauren Cruz tells Peter that Hughes wants to see him right away. And as Peter heads to Hughes' office, Neil asks Lauren. What's going on? Uh, the bureau's missing an agent. That isn't good. Yeah, he's an undercover from the D.C. office. We lost contact with him 12 hours ago. We need somebody who understands money more. Excuse me, I have an important case to deal with. Now, at this point, we don't know the details of the discussion between Hughes and Peter. We do catch a little bit of the conversation and Hughes saying that they need someone who understands money laundering, which we presume to be a reference to Neil. So at this point, we haven't been given any information to connect Neil to the name of Nicholas Halden, but we do get a clear indication that there is a, some sort of connection and that Hughes is pushing it and Peter is resisting. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So after Peter and Hughes have their conversation, Hughes walks out and signals to Neil to come on up. Peter and Hughes brief Neil on the situation, specifically that Agent Mark Costa was posing as a drug trafficker looking to clean some dirty cash through Lao Shen. Costa had been working him until the previous night, and according to his last contact, Lao was making a pit stop in New York for about 72 hours, and then after that he would be on a flight to the homeland, China, and at that point, the FBI loses him. So why are you telling me this? Nicholas Halden? Who? Got the crap, Neil. We know he's one of your aliases. You created him to launder cash through that Canary Island scam you ran in 04. Multi-millionaire with a penchant for gambling. Are you willing to offer him full immunity? Done. I don't give a damn what you did five years ago. I want to find my agent. Then what can Nick do to help? 
We want you to make contact with Lao using this identity. What do you know about Pai Gao? It's a Chinese version of poker played with dominoes. Not really my game. Make it your game. I'm not gonna lie to you, this is a dangerous one, Caffrey. When Peter and Hughes mention the Nicholas Halden alias and want Neil to use that alias in, in trying to find the agent, Neil tries to be cagey. Neil is obviously still sensitive about protecting himself from prosecution for things that he did beyond the things that Peter had arrested him for and that he'd been convicted on, which was the bonds. And we saw the same hesitancy and sense of self-protection in Flip of the Coin when he hesitated to reveal to Peter information about the melting of precious metals, and he asked about the statute of limitations for certain crimes. So he's, he's obviously still trying to protect himself because he doesn't want to get himself into to a deeper situation in terms of possible prosecution. And so he uses the situation with the missing agent and Hughes's desire to use the Nicholas Halden alias to protect himself essentially from from any future prosecution for anything that Nicholas Halden may have done, which is actually very brilliant of him. Now, the revelation here of Nicholas Halden being one of Neil's aliases throws a new light on that previous discussion between Hughes and Peter, and that's what I had mentioned that I would come back to here in, in a minute. Now, up to this point in the series, Hughes has shown a clear reluctance to involve Neil any more than is necessary in cases up to the point of seemingly actively excluding him from investigations as much as he could. And it's been Peter who keeps Neil involved. But here we have Hughes pushing to involve Neil, and it seems Peter is the one dragging his heels. That's an interesting turnabout. But even more telling here is the fact that at the end of the earlier exchange, Hughes didn't tell Peter to bring Neil into the discussion or bring him up to be briefed and ask him to use his Nicholas Halden alias in this investigation. He got up from his desk, walked out of his office into the, uh, the uh, I don't know what you call it, the, the, the open platform area there above the uh, bullpen. And he was the one himself who brought Neil into this, who called Neil up. Now, this either shows that Hughes is softening his position about Neil and Neil's involvement in cases, or that he is so concerned about finding his agent that he's willing to do the proverbial deal with the devil in order to get it done. I'm not sure which at this point. Next, we see Neil and Mozzie in Neil's apartment watching the movie Tiles of Fire. For anybody who, who hasn't realized it yet, Tiles of Fire is not a real movie. It, it's It's a creation just for this particular episode. But looking at it, you have to admit, it's pretty well done. It has the look of one of those, uh, what, 1970s, 1960s, low-budget martial arts movies. So it's it's really, uh, it's a nice nice little joke in there. And during their watching of this movie, of course, Neil wonders about how the FBI possibly knew about his Nick Halden alias. Neil has realized that Peter and the FBI actually know more about him than he thought that they did. We also learn about another of Neil's aliases, Steve Tabernacle, although we really don't learn anything about Steve here other than his name. Now, the conversation veers into a discussion of the man with the ring, and during this conversation, we also learn some things that Neil has stolen in the past that they think, or Mozzie thinks, 
might be some of the things that that the man with the ring is is interested in. The first is Poe's Tamerlane book. Second is a Tamayo painting. And the third is Washington's Love Letters. A little bit about Poe's Tamerlane. Now, there are some discrepancies in some of the information and timelines I've found. Poe was born in 1809. Some references say that the 40-page collection, Tamerlane and Other Poems, was first published as a self-published book by Poe when he was about 14. But the publishing information indicates the book was published in 1827, which would make Poe 18 years old. So I'm not sure which is accurate as far as Poe's age uh, when the book was published. I, I tried multiple sources and could not come up with a definitive consensus. It, it seems to be pretty evenly split from what I could see uh, between the information that suggested he was 14 and other information that suggested he was 18. Now, rather than use his own name, Poe's authorship on Tamerlane is simply listed as a Bostonian. The number of copies printed is also subject to some discrepancy and disagreement. Many sources indicate that there are only about 50 copies. Various scholars believe that the number may have been slightly lower, perhaps as low as 20 copies, or substantially higher, at perhaps as many as 200 copies. However, the book was so rare that after Poe's death, the editor and critic Rufus Wilmot Griswold believed it had never existed until one was found in 1859. Today, it is believed that only 12 copies exist making it one of the rarest first editions in American literature. In December 2009, a fairly worn original copy of Tamerlane and Other Poems was sold at Christie's Auction House in New York. Prior to the auction, Francis Walgren, who was the head of books and manuscripts at Christie's in New York, called the book The Black Tulip of U.S. Literature, expecting the book to sell for somewhere between $500,000 and $700,000. The book, in fact, actually did sell for $662,500, which established a record auction price for a piece of American literature. The Tamillo painting. Rufino Tamayo, who actually has a longer name that I, I, I would butcher if I tried to pronounce it, was born August 25, 1899, and died on June 24, 1991. He was a Mexican painter of Zapotec heritage, Born in Oaxaca de Juarez, Mexico, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, and was active in the mid-20th century in Mexico and New York, painting figurative abstractions with surrealist influences. Orphaned in 1911, he moved to Mexico City, and in 1917, he entered the National School of Plastic Arts. After the Mexican Revolution, Tamayo began to develop his identity and his work, expressing what he envisioned as the traditional Mexico not the overt political art of his contemporaries. He disagreed with their belief that the revolution had been necessary for the future of Mexico, but instead believed that the revolution would harm Mexico. In his painting, Children Playing with Fire, uh, from 1947, Tamayo shows two individuals being burned by a fire they have created, which symbolized the Mexican people being injured by their choice and actions. Tamayo claimed, We are in a dangerous situation, and the danger is that man may be absorbed and destroyed by what he has created. Due to his opinion, he was characterized by some as a traitor to the political cause. Tamayo came to feel that he could not freely express his art and therefore decided in 1926 to leave Mexico and move to New York City. 
Tamayo was proud of his Mexican heritage and culture and was also profoundly influenced by the disregard shown of Mexican artists. Octavio Paz, who in 1990 was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature, stated of Tamayo, if I could express with a single word what it is that distinguishes Tamayo from other painters, I would say without a moment's hesitation, sun, for the sun is in all his pictures, whether we see it or not. Next, we come to Washington's love letters. When George Washington died in 1799, Martha Washington destroyed almost all of her correspondences with her husband that she had saved over the course of their relationship. After years spent in the crush of public notoriety, it was about the only thing in her private life that she could control. Only three letters escaped from the mass eradication, two of which were found beneath a desk drawer after her death and are among the few pieces of remaining evidence to the nature of Martha and George Washington's relationship. So that's just a little bit about the three things that we know that Neil has stolen in the past. So let's get back to the episode. As they're watching the movie Tiles of Fire, Neil realizes that the movie really has nothing to do with the game Pi Gao. And even Mozzie admits that the movie takes a few liberties with the actual details of the game by throwing in a non-existent death tile. After Neil convinces Mozzie to, hey, let's get serious about this, I need to, to learn this game, Mozzie begins instructing Neil on the game for real. And then we discover that not only is June a fan of Tiles of Fire, but there are also five sequels. The next thing we see is Peter briefing the team, and then they set up at an apartment above the Meishi Lin restaurant. Now, the restaurant and presumably the apartments above it, because there are multiple apartments up there, they are owned by a family that are trusted informants for the Bureau. Now, as the team enters the apartment, they, of course, take off their shoes before entering, as is customary in many cultures. And here we see Peter's socks. They are called Dogs All Over, and they come from Wheelhouse Designs. They were a gift from Elizabeth. I think the fact that he wore them to work says something about him and his relationship with Elizabeth. Many people, given such, let's say, unusual pieces of clothing as a gift, might wear those things casually, but Peter wears it to work. And given the nature of his profession and the sort of situations he's likely to find himself in, I think the chances of them being seen by somebody are probably higher than they, they would, it would be in other professions or other situations, and yet he wears them because they were a gift from his wife. And I would say that his love for his wife and his willingness to express it by wearing those socks at work outweighs his concerns about what others would think of him for wearing those socks. Now, for anyone who really wants to get a pair of those socks for themselves, I will have a link in the show notes so that you can find both the gray and the blue versions of those socks so you can have your very own. During the course of the team setting up, Neil gets his anklet removed and replaced by a watch that has a tracker in it and a one-way audio monitoring device installed. As he gets ready to leave and meet with Lau, Neil jerks Peter's chain a little bit by telling him that everything will be fine as long as he doesn't draw the death tile. And the fact that this concerns Peter, it really kind of shows that Peter failed to complete his homework on the case. Neil goes up to the gaming house and walks in, sits down at a table, and here he makes a gremlins joke and then enters the game of Pi Gao. I would say that within the context of the episode, 
uh, maybe Neil is making a bad joke about the dealer's appearance and, and comparing it to the appearance of the grandfather, Mr. Wing, from the character uh, or from the movie Gremlins. Uh, Mr. Wing was the owner and caretaker of Gizmo at the uh, that we saw at the very beginning of the movie, and then he came back at the end of the movie. That would be a very tasteless, tacky, uh, inappropriate joke, I guess, would be the, the, the thing to say. Uh, I mean, it's almost um, a stereotypical, stupid American, can't tell one Asian person from another, they all look alike uh, type attitude. And I would, I would hope Neil wouldn't have that attitude, but we know that he's made inappropriate jokes in the past. We saw that in the Threads episode where he made the joke to Lauren about where does she keep her gun when he met her, and she was wearing that very short, tight-fitting dress that, quite frankly, left no room for any kind of uh, weapon or or anything else to be hidden. So I, I guess in the context of the series, we can say, okay, Neil has a history of making really inappropriate jokes, and maybe this is just another one of them. That's the best explanation I could come up with uh, within the white-collar world. I think there is another explanation outside of the white-collar world that makes this line, don't get them wet, don't feed them after midnight, make more sense. So let's go back to the movie Gremlins for just a brief minute, because that's where that line comes from. If you remember the beginning of the movie Gremlins, Randall Peltzer was an inventor, played by Hoyt Axton, who goes into this shop run by an elderly gentleman. It's kind of a curio slash junk shop. While he's in there, Peltzer is trying to sell this uh, elderly shopkeeper, Mr. Wing, one of his inventions. Well, as he's talking to him, he keeps hearing this, this sound. It sounds like it's from an animal of some sort. And he keeps hearing it, and he gets curious about it, and he discovers the Magwai. Well, he wants to buy the Magwai for his son for Christmas. Mr. Wing won't sell it to him, and Peltzer's getting frustrated. Wing's grandson is there, and he tells Peltzer, you know, go on outside, just wait for me. And after a few minutes, the grandson comes out with the Magwai, sells it to Peltzer, and tells him the three rules of the gremlins. Don't put them in the bright light, don't get them wet, and don't feed them after midnight. So it's, it's the grandson who sells the Magwai to Peltzer, and tells him the rules. Now, that child actor was John Louie. It's my theory that the actor playing the Pi Gow dealer is John Louie. I can't find any evidence to prove my theory. I can't find any evidence to disprove my theory. Part of the reason for that is that that role and that actor is not credited in the episode, not credited anywhere that I've been able to find. But It's my theory that this is an inside joke by somebody on the production staff. The fact that we can't prove who this actor actually was, whether it was John Louis or somebody else, is because, as I said, there are no credits for this character, which is a little bit, it seems a little strange, because even though the character doesn't have any lines that are spoken, he does seem to be featured I mean, he gets some pretty good screen time there. So why would an actor who gets as much screen time as he gets, who's who's featured as prominently as this character and actor is in these, these sequence of scenes, why would he not be credited? I have a theory about that as well. And it kind of, in a weird kind of way, provides some support to my theory that this is, in fact, John Louis. 
John Louis continued as an actor for several years after uh, filming the movie Gremlins, for about three or four years after that. Eventually, he went to Stanford University for undergraduate degrees and then to Harvard Business School, where he received his Master's of Business Administration in 1996. Now, at the time of this episode's filming, which was 2009, John Louis, the actor who, as a child, had played the grandson in the movie Gremlins, in 2009, he was the Vice President for International Strategic Planning and Marketing for Mattel Incorporated. And this is, I think, key to my theory as to why he was not credited. Part of his function as the Vice President of International Strategic Planning and Marketing was to craft retail partnerships with key multinational accounts and also to manage regional marketing services for European subsidiaries, including media. For a number of years prior to 2009, Mattel had been creating direct-to-home release movies based on many of their toy properties. A big one was the Barbie movie series. Well, as the Vice President of International Strategic Planning and Marketing, responsible for crafting retail partnerships with multinational accounts of Mattel's and for managing regional marketing services, including media, presumably John Louis would have some interaction with the company that they had distributing their direct-to-video movies, which was Universal. White Collar was a 20th Century Fox production. It might be a little bit awkward for the vice president of Mattel's International Strategic Planning and Marketing Division. It might be a little awkward for him to interact with Universal Studios and have his name appear in credits in an episode of a TV show uh, produced by 20th Century. So that right there could be the very reason why we have no credits as to who this actor is. So if this was, in fact, John Louis who was playing that part, this is a good explanation as to why he may not have wanted his name given in the credits and maybe one of the reasons why we never find out for certain who this actor really is. Now, I did reach out to uh, a number of the production people from White Collar, and I asked them if any of them knew for certain, one way or the other, if this was, in fact, John Louis the actor, uh, vice president of Mattel or somebody else. Most of my inquiries were not responded to, not really a surprise. I did receive a response from one of the people that I reached out to, who shall remain not uh, remain nameless, uh, in part because I don't have their permission to give their name, and also because I don't want to be responsible for uh, encouraging people to uh, flood their inbox with inquiries. But to that person, if they ever listen to this episode, they know who they are. And I would like to thank them for their uh, efforts in assisting me in trying to resolve this question and identify who this actor was. Uh, They were not able to provide any information because they didn't know. And they indicated that they reached out to Jeff King and he was not able to provide that information as well. And yes, I did reach out to the Screen Actors Guild as well. Uh, They basically blew me off by saying that an actor's screen acting credits is confidential information. Mm, Let me think about that one for a minute. Anyway, back to the episode. Uh, During this Pi-Gow game, Neil meets Mei-Lin, who is serving as his hostess. And then, of course, he meets Lao Shen. And the verbal dance between the two of them has just begun when things suddenly go wrong. Peter, we got a problem. NYPD got a tip-off. They're about to raid the game. 
hell tipped them off? I have no clue. They're gonna get Neil killed. Or you get me Captain Shattuck of NYPD before they crash this whole thing. It's NYPD! Hands on the table! Everyone's down! Down! We will shoot! Freeze! Come on, Neil. Just give yourself up. Tell them you're FBI. Shots fired. We got a white male, six foot, great suit, heading out of the building. I don't think he gave himself up. <sighs> Maybe it's not him. I'm trying to save my cover here, guys. It's him. All right. He's now with me in three minutes. You mobilize back up and tell NYPD to stay the hell out of our way. Well, I think we see something here in this um, in this sequence that is very, very big. Experts say that in a stressful situation, your first response is your most honest response. Peter's first response here is that they're going to get Neil killed and that Neil should give himself up and tell them that he's FBI. Now, Peter does not know who from Lau's organization might still be there. If Neil were to identify himself as FBI to the, to the police, he could blow the entire operation. But Peter's response is not about saving the operation. It's about saving Neil. This is huge. Now, naturally, Neil, being Neil, he doesn't do the rational thing, but instead he improvises, trying to salvage the operation. So he grabs one of the round tabletops that just conveniently happens to not be bolted to the base and uses it as protection against the police gunshots while trying to make his escape. Neil does manage to escape the local police. But in the process, he runs into a couple of Lao's men, and they don't look happy. But Mei Lin steps in and rescues him, telling the men that Lao said to let her take care of it. In the meantime, Peter directs Cruz and Jones to begin trying to figure out what happened and why. And then Peter calls Elizabeth. Another all-nighter? I married a perceptive woman. I married a predictable man. All right, so no dinner tonight. How about lunch tomorrow? That sounds great. What did Neil do now? Nothing. Yet. You know, I wouldn't worry too much about him. He respects you, you know. I think you're overselling our bond a little bit. I don't. Good luck. I think this conversation between Peter and Elizabeth serves to highlight even further how Peter feels about Neil. I already mentioned that his first response when the New York police, the local police, raided the uh, gaming room was for Neil to give himself up, potentially compromising the investigation to find their missing agent. And here, I think we see see that being built upon, even though I don't think Peter consciously realizes how he feels. But we, we hear it in this conversation. When Elizabeth tells Peter... Neil respects you. Peter responds, I think you're overselling our bond. Now, that doesn't really seem all that significant. But if you look at the wording, Elizabeth's comment was unidirectional. It was about how Neil feels about Peter. Peter's response, though, is bidirectional. He doesn't say, tell Elizabeth, I think you're overselling Neil's bond to me. He says, you're overselling our bond, the, the bond between each one of them for the other one. Elizabeth's comment was unidirectional, but Peter responds to it bidirectionally. I think that's very significant and shows that Peter actually has a very 
a, a developing a strong bond with Neil. Maylin takes Neil to a hotel and eventually reveals that she is an Interpol agent. She also admits, or, or at least she doesn't deny, having been the one to call the cops with the anonymous tip that led them to raid the game. Maylin tells Neil that the FBI is interfering with an Interpol operation to get to Lau's boss. She also tells Neil that she can help him get to the man who has Kate, and all he has to do is watch up the FBI's operation and let Lau walk. The next morning, Neil returns to the apartment where Peter and the team are headquartered, and Peter asks about the watch. Here we see the first hint that Neil may be considering compromising the FBI's case. He lies to Peter about what happened to the watch and conveniently leaves out the detail about May Lynn being Interpol. And when Cruz reports that the anonymous tip that raided the Pygal parlor came from May Lynn, he attempts a subtle deflection by questioning the validity of the information. Peter seems to have some questions about Neil's recounting of that night. Uh, he points out that if Maylin were really trying to keep the deal alive, as Neil suggests, then why would she have had the gaming parlor raided? Peter, Neil, and Lauren go to a hostess bar where Maylin reportedly works, and Peter uses a little subterfuge to try and get information on Maylin's whereabouts. And the information that he gets points to something called the Red Lantern Export Company. But again, Neil tries to deflect the case from May Lynn by telling Peter that pursuing the case through her is a waste of time. Peter's had Lauren Cruz doing a little bit of investigating, and she comes up and gives him the results of that investigation. And it just makes Peter question Neil's reliability and his intentions even further than he was questioning them before. She's Interpol. Oh, you think Neil knows? He spent six hours alone with her in a room. He knows. Maybe he was keeping his cover. Okay. He knows. He's playing me. Well, there's really only one reason why he would keep something from you. Just one? Okay. Again, Peter's bringing Elizabeth into the case. And again, Elizabeth serves as his lens to focus his thoughts and his direction on the important details. In this particular case, it's that if Neil isn't following the course that they had set out for him on this case, it's because of Kate, something to do with Kate, and something to do with May Lynn being Interpol tied up with something to do with Kate. Next, Peter and Neil head to the Red Lantern warehouse, where, again, Neil tries to drag his heels on the case, first suggesting that they can't enter because they need a warrant, then saying that he can't get them in because he doesn't have his lockpick tools. Now, Peter either routinely carries those himself, which seems unlikely, as that wouldn't probably be typical for a law enforcement agency, or he anticipated Neil's response and grabbed a set before heading to the warehouse. I'm going to lean toward the latter. Inside the warehouse, they find a freezer, and inside that freezer, they find the body of their missing agent. Almost immediately, Lau's men appear, and it seems that they're there to pick up Agent Costa's body. Uh, Peter doesn't have any cell phone service in the warehouse to call for backup, so he and Neil climb onto the top of a shelving unit and observe. Well, Peter has no choice. He, he has to let Lau's men leave, and of course, he's upset about that. Neil rationally points out that had Peter tried to confront them and stop them, that the two of them could have ended up dead. In his frustration, Peter doesn't react well to that. And the combination of 
being forced to let Lao's men leave, and his knowledge that Neil has been holding out on him is finally too much. And he confronts Neil about Mei Lin. I never lied to Vader. You did leave a few things out. You don't understand. I need to find Kate. She's in danger. Look, my husband really wants to trust you, but you keep giving him reasons not to. You're on your own on this one. Please, please, no, stay. Don't go. What now? No, I wouldn't take you off this case if I could. I wasn't talking about the case. What did Interpol promise you? Did Maylin promise you, Kate? What was I supposed to do? She said she could find her. In exchange for what? They want Lau to walk. Do you know why? They're after his boss. Lau doesn't have a boss. You know what this is really about? It's about jurisdiction. If they arrest him on Asian soil, they get additional funding from China's government. Additional funding? Yeah, half a million dollars. That's the price of a dead FBI agent. You really think you can believe everything she tells you? We either take down Lao now, or our partnership comes to an end. We're partners. You tell me. Neil does come clean with Peter, albeit reluctantly. It's, it's understandable. He feels he's caught between his responsibility to Peter and his responsibility to Kate. And undoubtedly, he feels that revealing the truth to Peter compromises his ability to fulfill his responsibilities to Kate. Uh, his conflict is further complicated, though, when Peter tells him that Maylin lied to him because Contrary to what she told Neil, Lau doesn't have a boss. And the motivation for Mei to let Lau walk is that if Interpol can arrest him on Asian soil, they get additional funding. So basically, almost everything Mei has told him up to this point about the investigation, about Lau, about Interpol, has been a lie. And then, of course, Peter warns Neil that if they don't take down Lau themselves right now, that the partnership between Neil and Peter is over. And the idea that they are partners, just the fact that Peter even says that, really hits deep with Neil. I mean, he has friends. Mozzie, of course, we know. And, of course, he had Kate, who was and is his girlfriend. But the spark that Peter strikes with the word partners seems to suggest that he hasn't had someone that he considers a partner in the same way that he considers Peter to be a partner and that Peter considers him to be a partner. But I think it's maybe more than that. I've mentioned before that there's kind of this father-son relationship between Peter and Neil. And it seems to me that the response Neil is having here is the same sort of response that a kid might have when his father, to whom he looks up but feels inadequate in comparison to, calls him a partner. I mean, that's, that's the kind of response that I see out of Neil here. And I think that's... I think that really highlights the fact that there is this almost father-son relationship between the two. After the conversation, Neil returns to his apartment, and Mei Lin is there with June. And it's clear that June has her suspicions about Mei Lin because she tells Neil as she's leaving the apartment, I'd keep my eye on that one.
What happened to Costa? What, no small talk? I saw a dead FBI agent today. I really feel like small talk. I'm the reason you found that body. You expect me to believe you left a breadcrumb trail on purpose? You lied to me about why you want Lau? And? And you're letting a murderer go free to curry political favor. If that sits right with you, then maybe I should rethink our arrangement. I'm just doing my job. And right now, my job is to make sure the FBI can't monitor any of Lau's accounts during your meeting tomorrow. Doesn't matter to me what happens after that. O'Neill. The man who's got Kate. I know who it is. In the previous episode, I mentioned about how about how Neil had led Uncle Gary to believe he was saying Neil was saying certain things or or asking certain questions that he really wasn't. And I'd commented about how easy it is to get people to believe that you're saying something that you aren't. And I see that happening here again. Maylin wants Neil to believe that she was the one that led the FBI to Costa's body. And when Neil says, well, you expect me to believe you left a breadcrumb trail on purpose, she responds, your agent deserved a proper burial. Now, most people would interpret that response as meaning, yes, I left a breadcrumb trail for you to follow. But that isn't at all what that response means. In fact, the response doesn't even really address Neil's questions at all. It's simply a statement, which is designed to let the listener infer something uh, and, and infer that the statement is an affirmation and a, and a confirmation of the question that was being asked. And really all she said was, hey, your guy deserves a proper burial. Okay, great. He deserves a proper burial. Did you actually lead us to find him? Those two things aren't related. It's not an answer to the question. And then rather than admit that she lied about Lau having a boss and that it's all about securing the additional funding, she avoids the issue altogether. She just simply tells Neil, well, it's my job to make sure that the FBI can't monitor any of Lau's accounts in this meeting that has been set up where you're supposed to give him this money and the FBI can follow it. She doesn't admit that she outright lied, but it's a tacit admission that she lied. So the fact that Neil has confirmation from Peter that Maylin lied, the fact that Maylin's not denying that she lied should really cause Neil to question everything she has ever said to him, including the suggestion that she could help him find Kate. Now, maybe she realizes that this is the case, that, that maybe, you know, maybe he will figure out that I've been lying to him about everything, including what I said about Kate. So she tries to deflect his attention from that fact, uh, from the fact that she can't be trusted to tell the truth, by redirecting his attention with her claim that the man who's got Kate, I know who it is. And that wording is very important because that wording becomes important to something that happens later. The other thing she says is that uh, it's her job to make sure the FBI can't monitor any of Lau's accounts uh, during the meeting and that after that, it doesn't matter what happens. That's going to be important too. Now, in preparation for the meeting with Lau, where uh, Neil is supposed to give Lau an account number so that Lau can supposedly launder this money and thus give the FBI the opportunity to track that money through the account because they're monitoring the account and give them the evidence that they need to bust Lau on his money laundering. During that 
setting up that meeting, Peter gives Neil a new watch and says, well, you better not break this one. I think we can assume that Peter's figured out that contrary to what uh, Neil had said previously, he didn't damage the first one while he was trying to get away from the local heroes, as Mozzie puts it. And I think we can also hear in Peter's voice that he's perturbed with Neil when he says, manually deactivate the transmitter, press it again, it turns back on, and you damn well better turn it back on. The tone in his voice is pretty much a warning to Neil. Don't let yourself be tempted to let Lau walk. Remember what I said about being partners? I mean it. Well, we know that Peter wants to get Lau for Costa's murder, but perhaps he realizes that with Lau's men having taken Costa's body, they really don't have anything anymore that they can use to tie him to the murder, so he's focused, he seems to be focusing on getting Lau for the money laundering. And we can see this, uh, see evidence of this, this change of focus a little bit when he's talking to Neil in the monitor van and he tells him, once you give Lau our account number, we'll be able to scan the dirty money. And so between that and the audio from the watch, we'll be able to put this guy away from good, which makes it all the more important that Neil not blow the operation. But of course, Maylin isn't going to give up. And in the elevator up to Lau's suite, Maylin gives Neil a different account number that she wants him to use that the FBI can't trace. Despite Peter's warnings, Neil, he, he really does betray Peter by not turning on the watch transmitter while making the deal. And further, he betrays Peter by giving Lau the account number that Maylin gave him, not the one that the FBI set up for the deal. After Neil makes the deal with Lau, Maylin gives Neil the flash drive, which she says she was going to give him that has all the information about who has Kate. But now Neil begins his betrayal of Maylin. Well, not really betrayal. That's probably not the right word. Uh, double cross. Let's, let's call it that. It's a double cross. What he does is he draws Lau into a game of uh, Pai Gao. And of course, we can see that Maylin is not happy about the sudden change of plan by Neil. And she's clearly even more unhappy when he essentially tells her that he's about to double-cross her now that he technically did what she demanded and seemingly gave Neil what he wanted. So we're back to this uh, line that she said earlier of, as long as, the, as long as you use the account number we give you so that the FBI can't trace it, I don't care what happens after that. Well, this is what happens after that. Neil double-crosses her. After apparently losing most of his money, presumably intentionally, Neil puts up the transmitter watch as a bet against Lau's watch. He activates the transmitter on the watch as he puts it on the table, and then, of course, he promptly loses the hand. After Neil loses the hand and he leaves, Lau and his associate begin to speak freely on a number of subjects, uh, including the disposal of Agent Costa's body, and all the while, Peter, Jones, and Cruz are listening and recording. Later, Peter tells Mr. Tan, their informant, uh, the owner of the Michelin restaurant and of the apartment that they used as their command post, that they have enough information on the recordings to put Lau away for a long time. We know that the FBI can get Lau now on the def death of Agent Costa because we know that he talked about that while Peter and the, te uh, the team were recording their conversations. So even though prior to this, they didn't have anything because the body had disappeared, now they've got him on that. Peter does say they have hours of transcripts on Lau, but nothing we see or hear lets us know for certain if he had anything that would tie Lau to the money laundering. 
So I suppose it's still possible for Interpol to get him on that after the U.S. is done with him on the murder charge. But we don't know for certain that the U.S. won't have him on the money laundering either. Despite the fact that the FBI can nail Lau on the murder and possibly the money laundering, the fact is Neil betrayed Peter and the FBI by essentially botching, or at least potentially botching, their case against Lau for the money laundering. He also double-crossed Mei Lin. After all, her intention was that the FBI couldn't bust Lau so that Interpol could. Now, the fact that Neil set things up so that the FBI could bust him, at least on the murder, possibly still on the money laundering, means that Interpol can't. Or at least the best they can do is extradite him to a European jurisdiction so that they can charge him. But, of course, they won't be able to get the extra money that they had been banking on getting. Later, Mei Lin calls Neil. Yeah. Hello, Neil. You calling to apologize about the empty flash drive? That was a necessary precaution. I had to be careful with something this sensitive. So you know where I Kate? I don't have a name, but I know this. He's FBI. How do you know? How do you know that? The fact that the flash drive Malin gave Neil was empty should probably not have been a surprise to him. After all, everything she had told Neil, basically the entire time from the, uh, from the time that she revealed that she was Interpol on, everything had been a lie and a manipulation. So why should Neil be surprised that she lied to him about having information of, about Kate? Uh, of course, the lies, I don't think, in there or at least the lies continue to, to be a factor because she tells Neil that she doesn't know who the man is who has Kate. She only knows that he's FBI. But that's not what she said before. Back at Neil's apartment, when he confronted her about lying about Lau's boss and they disagreed about Agent Costa and whether or not she led them to his body, she said, the man who's got Kate I know who it is. The man who has Kate, I know who it is. Not, I know who he works for. Not, I know something significant about him. Not, I know what direction to send you in to find him. No, it was a very definitive, I know who it is. And now she's saying, I don't know who it is. And it's unfortunate that Neil seems to give what she says about the, the person having Kate being FBI, it's unfortunate he gives any of that any kind of credence. Because either she lied to Neil previously when she said she knew who it was, or she's lying to him now when she says she doesn't know who it was. And I think it's more likely that she's lying to him now out of spite for Neil having double-crossed her. Especially that when Neil asks how she knows that the man is FBI, not only does she not answer the question, she hangs up on him. She, she's not going to continue the conversation. But the fact that Neil does believe her leaves him very suspicious of every FBI agent in the room, every FBI agent he's ever worked with, I would presume including Peter, which is really a shame because, after all, he's made tremendous progress in starting to trust Peter and the other FBI agents he's been working with. Now, Sherry DeFontenay 
who is the moderator and admin of the White Collar Fandom Facebook group, calls the ending of this episode one of the most effective, dramatic moments of the entire series. Poor Neil. His whole world shifted right there in that moment, leaving him just holding on for dear life. And I think that's probably the best way to sum up the episode. I will be providing links to all the resources I've mentioned, plus links to various sets of rules for PyGao that uh, I found on the internet. I will include all those in the show notes and on the official website, which is at whitecollaredpc.com. On the website, you also find ways to communicate with the show and with me personally. I want to thank you for listening to this episode and ask you to please be sure to join me for the next episode as I share my thoughts on episode seven, Free Fall. But until then, take care and God bless. (laughs) 